This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians 4, and I want to preach today a special message with sort of a Thanksgiving theme, and Philippians 4 is, is certainly uh, that. It is about um, the importance of Thanksgiving and about the relationship between prayer and peace and joy, and thanksgiving, and how all of those things sort of of tie together. So Philippians chapter 4, we're talking about a life that soars, and let's look at what God's Word says together. Philippians 4, and verses 4 through 9, I would just encourage you, meditate on these verses, try to commit these verses to memory. I mean, it's the type it's a type of passage that you know, if you can just keep going back to this and and live by this, there'd be an incredible power in in your life. God will use it. Philippians 4 and beginning with verse 4. The Bible says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for your word. We pray that as we prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving in a few days, that you would show us through your word today more about what a life of thanksgiving looks like and the relationship of that to to, to prayer um, and to uh, joy. Show us how these things uh, tie together and give us your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you've had the experience of, of flying on sort of a rainy, dreary day. And when you take off, you know, everything's just kind of kind of dreary and, and cloudy. But then the plane just sort of breaks through the clouds. And when you get on top of the clouds, I mean, it's just a different world. The sun is, is streaming. Everything is just beautiful. We see that kind of a transition in Philippians 4. Because at the, in the opening verses of Philippians 4, Paul has had to deal with sort of a rainy, cloudy issue in the church at Philippi. But then beginning in verse 4, it's like he just bursts through the clouds into one of the most sunlit passages in 
the Bible. But in order to kind of fully understand what's happening in verses 4 through 9, we need to take a look at this sort of rainy, cloudy issue that he's been dealing with in verses 2 and 3. So let's take a look um, at that. In verses 2 and 3, Paul has said, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So what's been happening in this church is a conflict between these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. And the conflict in their relationship is impacting the whole church. These two ladies were not sort of marginal members of the church. It's clear that they were actively involved in the ministry of the church. Paul refers to them here in verse 3 as those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. And so Paul knew these women well. They had been a great help to him in the ministry. They were a huge part of that church family, and, and now they are at odds. They're in conflict, and it's impacting not only them, but it's impacting the whole church family. So, what he is saying here in verses 4 and following, and he's speaking not just to these two women, he's speaking to the whole church family. He is saying, listen, you need to get over yourselves and move up to higher ground. Get beyond the pettiness of this conflict that's been going on and, and, and move up to something higher. And that's the life that he describes for us in verses 4 through 9. He gives us here a life that is, is, is worthy of, of, of being a model, not only for other people in the church, but for people who have not yet believed in Jesus. What things should characterize our lives as individual believers and as a church family? First of all, joy. Joy. He, he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. So joy is a recurring theme in the book of Philippians. You, you see um, 16 times in four chapters some form of the word joy. So Philippians really is a, the, the epistle of joy. And New Testament scholar Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians says this, Joy, unmitigated, untrammeled joy is or at least should be the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. And the joy that we have in Christ is different than sort of a, a circumstances-based joy that sort of depends on everything going well in our lives. That kind of happiness depends on what happens. This kind of joy is different. This is a joy that, that transcends the circumstances of our lives because it is in the Lord. And no matter what our circumstances are, we always have him. 
Again, Gordon Fee says this, with its concentration in the Lord, rejoicing is always to mark their individual and corporate life in Philippi. The presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in their midst meant the experience of joy, whatever else may be their lot. In this letter, the whatever else includes opposition and suffering at the hands of local citizens of the empire where Caesar was honored as Lord. In the face of such, they are to rejoice in the Lord always. So you see, the church at Philippi was a persecuted congregation. Philippi was a city that was mainly settled by retired Roman soldiers who were fanatically devoted to the emperor. And they were into emperor worship. Caesar was their lord. So the Christians here were sort of a tiny persecuted minority. And for them, Caesar wasn't lord. Jesus was lord. They had made the same confession that the four people in the baptistry made a few minutes ago. Jesus is my savior and lord. But a lot of the people in Philippi didn't like that confession. And so these people were suffering. These Christians were suffering. They were being persecuted for their faith. But Paul is saying that even in the midst of what you're going through, you can have a joy that, that transcends your circumstances because it is a joy that is based in the Lord. Now, now think about this in relationship to the conflict that was going on between these two ladies in this congregation. Paul is saying here, you may wonder, why does he deal with sort of this conflict that's going on in verses 2 and 3? And then immediately in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. What's the relationship there? Well, the relationship is that Paul is saying to these two women and to the whole congregation, he is saying to them, listen, think about who you are. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Jesus is alive, and he's Lord. He has lived the perfect life that you could never live. He went to the cross as your substitute. He paid for the crushing debt of sin that you could never pay for. He died in your place. He rose from the dead and conquered death in your place. And, and now you have the presence of the Holy Spirit who is with you always, no matter what your circumstances are. You can know that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. You can know that even the, in the difficulty of your circumstances, that God is at work and he's causing all things to work together for his glory and for your good. And one day you're going to live forever with him in a glorified body in a new heaven and earth. That is your future. So, so look, rejoice in the Lord. Move from this conflict to celebration because of what Jesus has done. It's taking them to the higher ground. Joy. Second, gentleness. Gentleness. He calls us to, to, to gentleness with, with one another. Verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at 
hand. Now, the ESV translates this word as reasonableness. I think the, the best translation really is, is gentleness. The Greek word has sort of a sense of, of, of a forbearing gentleness. It's closely related to patience. And, and it's, it's a word that is saying that we are, to, we are to bear with one another's sins and flaws and weaknesses the way that Jesus has borne with us <laughs> and been gentle with us in our sins and flaws and weaknesses. Now think about this in relationship to the conflict that's been going on because usually in conflict, there's a lack of this. <laughs> There's a lack of gentleness. There's a lack of, of a forbearing patience with one another. And also, he says here that this is to be known to everyone. He says our gentleness is to be known to everyone. And by this, he means not only other people in the church family, but also to people who are not yet in Christ, to unbelievers. They should look at the church and they should see us treating one another with this kind of, of gentleness, and patience, and grace. Because that's the way that, that, that Jesus has, has, has treated us. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, the Lord is at hand, which is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Now, why does he insert that after a statement about gentleness? Well, again, Paul is calling them to something higher. He's helping them to see the big picture. A lot of times in conflict, we don't see the big picture. And Paul is saying, hey, look, get beyond these personal issues that you've been dealing with and understand there are much higher things at stake. Jesus is coming again. And, and, and that should completely overwhelm like whatever sort of petty differences or, you know, uh, trivial preferences or whatever that have caused this conflict. The fact that Jesus is, is coming he calls us to, to gentleness. Third, peace. Peace. Verses 6 and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let's kind of walk through this and unpack verses 6 and 7. First of all, in verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. The word anxious here has the root meaning of to be pulled apart. That's what anxiety, that's what worry does. It sort of, you know, pulls us apart. Jesus addresses anxiety, worry in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he says there in verses 31 and following, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus is saying here that worry is really pagan. It's something that is characteristic of unbelievers. I mean, if you don't believe 
in a God who loves you and who's in control, then there's reason to have anxiety. There's reason to worry. But if you do believe in that kind of a God who has become your father, who has adopted you and taken you in as one of his own beloved children, and he loves you, and he knows what's happening in your life, and he's in control of the circumstances of your life, and he's causing all things to work together for good, then then anxiety and worry is really irrational, and it doesn't glorify God. Worry and anxiety does not glorify God because it doesn't indicate trust in him. God is honored when we trust him. And so, again, going back to verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. So what this means is that the moment that we feel sort of uh, attacked by anxiety, the moment that something comes up that we're going to be prone to worry about, what should we do? Give it to the Lord. Place it in his hands. Let your requests be made known to God. Just put it in God's hands and trust him with it. And the result of that is his peace. His peace will flood our hearts because we know that we've given it to the Lord. We know it's in his capable hands. We know that he's got it. And and therefore, we can be at peace. And he says here that the peace of of God uh, will, uh, will, will, will like guard us. 1 Thessalonians 5 sort of gives us the relationship between joy and prayer and thanksgiving. Let's look at that. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can rejoice always if we're giving things to the Lord constantly, praying without ceasing, putting things in his hands instead of worrying about them. And we do that with thanksgiving. We can give thanks in all circumstances because we know that our Father is in control in all circumstances. And our Father loves us. And the result is peace. Verse 7, he says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When When we're giving our worries to the Lord rather than internalizing them and having anxiety over them, the result is the peace of God, which floods our hearts. And he, and he says here, he uses sort of an interesting phrase. He says that the, the peace of God at that point becomes sort of like a garrison of soldiers that guards our hearts and protects our hearts from anxiety. And this is a peace that surpasses human understanding. Again, uh, Gordon Fee says his peace totally transcends our merely human way of perceiving the world. Peace comes because prayer is an expression of trust, and God's people do not have to have it all figured out in order to trust him. Amen. Focus. Focus is the next thing. 
that, uh, that these verses are going to call us to. Look at verse 8. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, be proactive about your thought life. Do you realize that you can choose what you think about? This verse says that not only that we can choose what we think about, but that we must choose what we think about if we're going to obey God. We're to focus on these things that are godly and, and virtuous. And what that means is that we turn away from thinking about things that are not godly and virtuous. Now, let me just be kind of straight up here and blunt in order to obey verse 8, and I'm not speaking to you any, individually, I'm saying this because of the number of people that are sitting in this room. <laughs> if you're going to obey verse 8, many of you are going to have to kind of radically reorient your minds. Because you cannot obey verse 8 and sort of, you know, binge on cable news. You cannot obey verse 8 and binge on talk radio. You cannot obey verse 8 and binge on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. You cannot obey verse 8 and just sort of binge on Netflix. I mean, N.T. Wright says this. He says, how are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the places in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with, to enjoy, and to celebrate? Take control of your thought life. Your mind matters. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. Again, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Get proactive with your thought life, right? Turn away from just kind of, you know, spending your time um, feeding your, your mind with, with stuff that is just not going to be helpful for your growth in Christ and be intentional about focusing on things that are virtuous and good and godly, right? And that might mean a lot more Bible <laughs> and a lot less TV and social media. It means being around, you know, growing brothers and sisters in Christ that can help to take your mind and your focus to another place. I mean, it means some turning away from things that are not going to meet the criteria of verse 8 and a turning to the things that are going to help us focus our minds on the things of God. Focus. And then he calls us to be living it out and setting an example. Living it out and setting an example. Let's look at verse 9. 
Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of faith will be with you. In other words, it's not enough to know about these things. We're called to do them. So do practice joy. Do practice gentleness. Do practice a peace that comes through giving everything to the Lord in prayer and trusting him. Do practice a focus in what you think about. And then, again in verse 9, he, 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 look at the words in me. This is fascinating. He says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. A couple of observations here about, about this. First of all, an observation about discipleship. So, let's look again at what Paul says here. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What does that tell us about the nature of discipleship? It tells us that, that disciples are made by spending time with one another. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. So discipleship is life on life. Okay, if, if the only discipleship that you're getting, as important as it is, right, and it's an essential part of your discipleship, is to come and to sit under the preaching of the word. Okay, an essential part of discipleship is being in, in a Bible study with other believers where you're, you're opening God's word you're getting to know one another. If you're not involved in a Bible study, in a Sunday school class, get involved in one. Get involved in one because you, you interact around the text in ways that you don't in sort of a, a larger group like this. So it's not an either or. It's a, it's a both and for our growth in Christ. But, but you know what? We need even more than that. We need more than just what happens one day a week. We need brothers and sisters that we can be around kind of outside of Sunday morning and so that we can, we can, can help one another and, and see the way that we, that, we, that we live. That's what you see here in verse 9. In, in the New Testament church, these people were very involved in one another's lives. They were sharing meals together. They were opening their homes to one another. And that's kind of how a culture of discipleship takes root. When people are involved in one another's lives, and, and that's the best way to grow as disciples. And so look, I would encourage you um, to be doing those very things right? With your brothers and sisters in Christ. Share coffee together. Share some meals together. Open your homes to one another. We've got the holidays coming up. Your Sunday school class, the ministry that you're involved in, do you have plans made to kind of spend some time with one another? Open your homes to one another. Do some things together just to build that fellowship. Build those relationships so that you're spending time with one another, just beyond just Sunday morning.
clearly, I mean, we see that here in, in verse 9, and it impacts discipleship. Second, what does verse 9 tell us? What do these two words, in me, tell us about authenticity? This is a bold statement, isn't it? <laughs> Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In other words, if you're going to faithfully follow Jesus, look at my life. Wow. <laughs> Can we say that? Right? Are we, are, we, are we following closely enough to Jesus so that we can say to other people, watch me. Follow, follow me as I follow Christ. That's a bold statement, right? But that, doesn't that call us to something higher? <laughs> doesn't that call us to up our game? <laughs> doesn't that call us to, to think about what people are seeing in us? Let's, let's follow Jesus in such a way that, that other people can look at our lives and they can sort of see how to follow Jesus. And D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, he tells about a time when he was in, in college. As an undergraduate, he's involved in this Bible study. And there was a guy in the study who was, he was not yet a Christian. And, and, the, and the, guy, um, the guy had grown up in a family where, you know, good family, but, but not a Christian family. Um, and so, one time, this, this guy says to, to, to D.A. Carson, he says, hey, look, you know, I come from a great family, and, you know, we love one another, and, you know, we try to do good things in, in a community, and, and, and so forth. He says, yeah, what, what do you Christians have that, 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 that we don't have? And so, at that point, uh, Dr. Carson was a, a relatively young believer, and so he, he took that question to a guy named Dave, who was kind of a more mature believer on campus, and so Dave met with the guy, and he said to this, he said to this, this sort of a skeptic, Dave said to him, he said, hey, look, you can move in with me if you want to. I've got a spare, I've got a spare room. Um, you're welcome to come in. Hang out with me for about three months. And just kind of see the way that I experience life and kind of interact with people and uh, my values and sort of the way that I use my time and, and, and so forth. And at the end of that period, if you don't see a difference, just let me know. Well, the, the guy didn't take him up on the offer to, to take the extra room in his house. But, but what he did do was that he kept coming to the Bible study. And over time, he did see Jesus in Dave's life and in the life of this other little band of believers. And Dr. Carson says this about verse 9. He says, a Christian is saying in effect, I'm one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where there's bread. I drank deeply from the wellsprings of grace. God knows I need more of it. If you watch me, you'll see some glimmerings of the Savior and ultimately, you'll want to fasten on to him. Let's pray. That's the invitation. It's to fasten on to Jesus. But are we living lives that are close enough to Jesus so that our lives would encourage others to want to fasten on to the Savior? Father, that is our prayer, that 
by your Holy Spirit that you would draw us closer to Christ. Help us to follow closer to the Savior. May our lives reflect Christian joy, a joy that that transcends circumstances. May our lives reflect the gentleness of Christ. Lord, may our our lives uh, reflect a, a peace that comes from continual trust in Jesus that springs forth from unceasing prayer to Jesus, giving our, giving, our, giving our problems, giving things that we're tempted to worry about to you, trusting you. Father, we pray that you would help us to be proactive with our minds. Help us to, to focus on things that are virtuous, good, godly, that we might be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that we might take every thought captive to obey Christ and help us to live all of this out and set an example for others that they would see Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. If you are here and and you want to know more about just kind of what a relationship with Christ looks like, I'm going to be here at the front. Our our other pastors are going to be here um, as well. We would love to come alongside, uh, pray with you either now during our invitation or after our service today. Uh, We are here for you. If there's a need in your life, you say, I want to be a part of this church family, uh, we would love to come alongside um, and just celebrate that with you. If there's just a need in your life, you just need to pray with somebody. Uh, we We are here for you now or immediately following our service. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. 
you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.